0: Chapter 22, that's page 16 in your pew Bible, and don't let me forget to make an announcement at the end of the service about where the Sunday school rooms are. Didn't you appreciate that song? You could sit and listen to Andrew sing all day for sure, Uh, but thank you congregation for singing uh, and singing to my soul. Uh, As we're looking at Genesis 22, we come upon uh, a great test of Abraham. And the theme of the service is trust, or do we doubt God? And when you look up hymns to think about singing, trusting God, they did not seem to have the right timbre, the right rhythm. They were too happy. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I'm thinking, does Abraham really think that when he's walking with Isaac carrying wood on his back? Okay, not that song. Then I go, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. I'm thinking, did Abraham sing that as he's hiking up his Mount Everest challenge of sacrificing his son? So we come to this great test, and praise God that we have a couple songs in our songbook that are for the weary souls. Uh, Praise God that we have a couple of them that are for the tough times, not just the lyrics. I love those two hymns, by the way. Don't write me an email about, you just dissed my favorite hymn. I love those. We will never get rid of them. But there are some days where the way they talk about faith and trusting God just doesn't seem to meet Maybe how we bring what Abraham is going through. So send me emails about that. How how do you think Abraham accomplished this test that he has? We should be able to identify with Abraham because we all have been tested again and again and again. We've all gone through tests. Some of us are currently in school and we've had tests there. Some of us have gone beyond high school to college or to graduate school, and it just seems the tests get more and more difficult, and if you're like me, more seems to ride up on the line. I remember my senior year of high school being given a heart monitor during final exam week by the doctor, because I remember sitting in English class competing for... The Val Victorian spot, and I remember my heart like just skipping beats. And I told my mom, Mama's boy, Mom said, We're going to the doctors. This is Northern Virginia. That's what you do. We believe in doctors down there, not we'll fix it ourselves, okay? But d- different culture there. And so I went, and they gave me this contraption to wear, and I had to skip two days of school uh, in wearing it. That only increased my anxiety that I was not going to pass this English exam where more rode on the line that very last test. Others of us, it is not the tests that come from a teacher on a paper that have challenged us. It is a test of life. Over the past hmm. six weeks, we've had several people come up to us and say, this church is being tested. Okay. <laughs> good, you have eyes to see. That's good, <laughs> right? Others have pointed out, something good is going on here, or else there wouldn't be all these tests. Which I've appreciated that perspective as well. In Genesis 22, it is Abraham's final test. At the end of his life, at the end of his life, Abraham could have thought that he's done all the tough things. No more test. But God does not work on our timetable. God does not work on our timetable. You don't get to coast just because you're retired. Little did Abraham realize that his life of faith was preparing for him a severe and sudden storm. One day, everything was great. The next day, Abraham's whole world seemed to be totally threatened. Notice this first phrase in Genesis 22:1. After these things, God tested Abraham. After these things. It should make you, as a good Bible student, ask yourself what? What things? Abraham was commanded in Genesis chapter 12 by God to leave his country, his relatives, and his father's house, his very first test, to leave everything you know and to go to a place where God says, I'll show you. Sounds very similar to this test here. Look at verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. Go, I will show you on which mountain. And in between this first test in chapter 12 and the last test here in chapter 22, there were many other tests of Abraham's faith. And Abraham does not get a hundred percent on each test. So, church, we should be able to identify that it is an up and down roller coaster ride, but we learn this that Abraham had faith in God because he reasons that God is faithful. He reasons that God is faithful. Learning to live a life of faith is a process. Learning to live a life of faith is a process. It isn't until after these things that Abraham gets the Mount Everest of challenges, right? At age 21, Jim Elliott, who was martyred in Ecuador seven years later, he wrote this, one does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. So while this new trial of faith hit Abraham suddenly, It really was the culmination of years of God dealing with Abraham and Abraham taking steps of faith, considering him faithful. So we see Abraham's trust and God's trustworthiness proved over these years in Abraham's life. So we read here in verses 1 and 2 that God tested Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Finally, 24 years of waiting. Finally, God fulfilled his promise of a son through Sarah. Finally, Isaac was the product of a miraculous conception Finally, God set in motion, right, the promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the son Isaac. Isaac, not Ishmael, is the heir of the promise. One of Abraham's tests of faith was actually in the prior chapter, chapter 21, where he had to make Ishmael and Hagar leave because God reminded him it's not through Ishmael, it is through Isaac that the heir And then now this, now this, after all those years, now this test, God tests Abraham where his very real hope, the hope of all the nations is bound up. God tests Abraham even where his love is. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Nothing else in all the circumference of Abraham's life could have been such a test as anything as the heir of the promise, the child of his old age, the laughter of his life. You have to ask yourself, does God really test people like this today? Does God test people? God does test people, but he does not tempt his people. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Our great enemy, Satan, he tempts that he may bring out the evil that is in our hearts. But God does not tempt. God tries, God tests, but he does so that he may bring out all of the good that the dross would be consumed. If you want to, you can flip over to 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7. Peter writes us, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Everything he sends is necessary, nothing good does he withhold. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Why am I grieved with all these trials, all these tests? Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the test is to prove that your faith is genuine. Big picture, friends. God is primarily concerned with his own glory, not my comfort or my success, how I would define it. Did you hear that? God is concerned with his own glory, not your comfort and not your success on how you would define it. God's top priority, cover to cover, is that God would look great. That's what the universe is designed for. That is what the church is destined to do. And so when we bear up under trials, when we lean wholly on Jesus' name, what we are doing is we are making God look good, all-sufficient, all-satisfying. Like the psalmist who finally says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Church, is God testing you? What are your hopes bound up in? What is your Isaac? Would God have you this morning give up something, something immoral, perhaps an illegal habit? Perhaps this morning would God ask you to give up an unwise relationship to let everyone know that you follow God? Believer, a true child gives evidence of his faith. If you're here as a non-Christian, just a thought for you. I'm often asked by young people, if I become a Christian, will I have to do this? Will I have to do that? Will I have to give this up? Will I have to give that up? You know what they're really trying to get at is, you know, I won't come to Christ unless you can tell me if I'm going to be able to keep doing this or keep doing that. What I like about that question from young people is that at least they're counting the cost of Christianity. It does cost something to be a Christian. I like that. I remember a young man I was witnessing to, who I probably could have led him to say a prayer at that moment, but I said, do you want to wait? And he took two more days, and it was, oh, it was a long two days. But he was really counting the cost of what it would be to follow Christ. And even though you're counting the cost correctly, maybe here as an unbeliever, I'm afraid that you might not have rightly understood not just the cost of Christianity, but the God of Christianity. For you to be able to say, you know, I'd be happy to come to the biblical God as long as he doesn't tell me that I can't do this. Well, whatever this is, that is your God. You get it? Tim Keller says your God is the non-negotiable thing in your life. Very practically speaking, cookies on the bottom shelf. What is your God? That thing in your life that is non-negotiable. Don't touch that. Don't mess with that. But the real God of the Bible is looking for a total commitment to follow him no matter what he says. Because he's God. So notice Abraham's response in verses 3 and 4. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Abraham was determined to obey. He had arisen early the next morning. It says there in verse 3, he rose early in the morning. That jumped out to me this week. It was like, whoa. He got up and said nothing to it but to do it. I mean, he just went for it, right? I was impressed with that. But then he has something that I had forgotten about in this story. Look at verse 4. On the third day. Those of you that are Christians have definitely some hints at where this is going. But I had never seen that before. Three day journey. He had plenty of time to reflect. God had promised that through Isaac all the nations of the world would be blessed. God had promised Now God commands for Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. God's promise seems to contradict God's command. How could what God said match with what God is saying? How could God keep His word, His promise, if Abraham kept God's command to kill Isaac? There was no earthly way to harmonize God's previous promise with God's present command. There are more theological loopholes than our US tax code. Okay? For Abraham to skate through and say, "I'm not going to follow through with this." How God certainly couldn't be asking me to do this. He already promised me. It doesn't make sense. Loophole. Friends, we we make loopholes that are smaller than that, to excuse our behavior. Abraham, as a theologian, had plenty of time to skate around those difficult doctrines and commands of God, but he also had plenty of time to cast his eyes over at Isaac as they walked together. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was as good as dead for three days. He had plenty of time to turn back. Plenty of time to develop excuses. Think about your day-to-day routine. How often do you come up with excuses? How often do we come up with excuses? I just can't do this ministry. I'm just too busy. Well, obedience for the Lord is never set due to our calendar schedule. Abraham, I'm sure, had things to do as well, but he got up early and he obeyed the next day. Man, couldn't we sympathize with Abraham if he just delayed a little bit? We even probably want to give him excuses. Abraham, have you thought of this? Well, oh, Abraham, what about? It's rainy today. We all come up with excuses. I can't support the Lord's work. There are other financial obligations upon me. What we really mean is God doesn't come first government, the bank, those come first. If if Abraham could find some reason, if Abraham could delay as long as possible, I think we could be more sympathetic. But Abraham shows us that obedience does not know convenience. We don't have Abraham's thoughts. We would have loved to have known his thoughts. All we have are his actions. They're tremendous. Look with me at verses 5 through 10. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Notice this. Abraham keeps the dangerous things. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Isn't that amazing? So they went both of them. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order. I wonder how long he took doing that, grabbing the furthest rock possible taking his good old time, putting the wood in place, stacking it, rechecking it, making sure it was set, just wondering where and how God was going to provide. Wouldn't you take a long time, men? I think I'd take a long time. And then he bound his son Isaac. And he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached on his hand And he took the knife to slaughter his son. How could Abraham do it? How could God command it? First, how could Abraham do it? Look again at verse 5. Abraham said to this young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. If you read through this whole passage together, you'll see how many times the author says, the son, the son, the son, the only son, the son, the son, the son. And then Abraham, when he refers to his son, it seems in this moment that he can't bring himself to call him his son. He says, I am the boy. How does Abraham do it? Abraham obeyed because he had learned over his lifetime that God is able to deliver him from impossible situations. Between chapters 12 and 22, we have 10 chapters, not primarily of Abraham's heroic trust, but we have 10 chapters of God proving that he is absolutely trustworthy. Abraham is able to trust a trustworthy God. Notice his confidence when he says, I and the boy will go over there, Together, plural, and then it says, "And we will come again to you." Right? He expects to come back with Isaac. The Epistle to the Hebrews, which a little foreshadow here, we hope to be in in September. Going to work through the whole Epistle of Hebrews. It might take us a while, but flip over to Hebrews chapter eleven, verses seventeen through nineteen, and it will fill us in on Abraham's reasoning. Abraham's reasoning is found in Hebrews eleven. 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. He had considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham could obey God because he believed God could raise the dead if need be. After all, remember, Abraham had already seen divine power being given to Sarah's room when both of them were as good as dead. Why couldn't God do it again? So Abraham gave proof, evidence of his faith. He had faith, and he acted on his faith. If your faith is not like this, your faith might, in this case, not be real faith. Real faith produces action. James tells us faith without works is dead. Look at James 2.20 and see how the New Testament interprets the old. James 2.20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Skip down to verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Friend, if you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian and your faith does not produce action consistent with that profession, recheck your faith. You don't have real faith. Abraham Believe God and it produced fruit and he acted on that faith. Now, how could God ask Abraham to do it? It would be hard enough if God just took Isaac from Abraham, but it seems inconceivable that God would command Abraham to kill his own son. It seems opposed to God's loving nature for this command. But first notice that God did not command Abraham to murder his son. He asked him to do what? Verse 2, to offer him as an offering, as a burnt offering. He asked him to sacrifice his son. Consider this in your small groups. If Abraham was asked by God to kill his wife Sarah, would he have obeyed? No. No. All throughout the Old Testament, God is consistently giving us a picture that the firstborn, the first fruits, the first crops are his exclusively. Throughout the whole Bible, that God owns the firstborn. And if you don't obey God, the plagues coming later show us what? It is the firstborn that bear that curse in the bible humans are not portrayed as morally neutral if you're new to the bible the bible portrays us as morally ruined in rebellion against god the bible says there is none righteous no not one god can demand that any soul that sins shall die ezekiel 18:20 so god could and god did demand the life of Isaac, but then spared him. Look at verses 10 through 14. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord said to him from heaven and said to Abraham, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. God required a sacrifice God provided a sacrifice. God has shown his people from Adam and Eve on that he would accept the death of a proper substitute as a payment for a person's sins. Substitution is at the heart of what it, Christianity is all about. John Stott, who I absolutely love, he be, he's able to write with simplicity, but he just writes these kind of contrasting sentences. Hear this. The concept of substitution may be at the heart of, Of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where man only deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. What God stopped Abraham from doing, he did. What God stopped Abraham from doing, he did. God did not ask of Abraham what he finally asked of himself. You see, those of us that are Christians know that this story points forward to another son. Another son of a miraculous conception. Another only son. Another son who was the heir of the promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But this other son would not be spared. I believe it's based upon Genesis 22 that Paul writes, Romans 8.32, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. When Jesus told the Pharisees, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he, when he saw it, was glad. I think he was referring to this incident. Abraham was able to look ahead and see how God would provide salvation in the person of God's Son, His only Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the big pictures of the death of lambs could never finally atone for a human sin, it was insufficient. They only pointed forward to the Lamb of God. who would take away the sins of the world. You see, if God required us humans to pay for our own sin, we could only pay for it one time, then we'd be gone. We needed a perfect lamb, an unblemished male lamb. And this son, the sacrificial lamb, didn't just die as a substitute in our place. He actually was resurrected because God didn't stop. And this lamb will be praised through all eternity. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Let's look at verse 6. In between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw a lamb stand. As though it had been slayed with seven horns, seven eyes, for the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy, are you to take the scroll, to open its seals? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. God has to bring us to this place of recognizing our great need. Our sin is so great that nothing other than the death of God's only son would suffice. This morning, God is calling you, just like Abraham, to trust him. This morning, will you put your faith, will you put your trust in this substitute who paid the penalty for you to make you be able to bypass his judgment if you will turn from your sins and trust him? If you're a follower of Christ, You should examine your life this morning to see if you are in the faith. True faith. Trust God's trustworthiness. Do you trust God? Not just in these big moments. It seems sometimes the big moments are easier to trust Him in. Have you noticed that in your life? When it seems like, hey, this is that time. This is the big one. You know, pay attention. But how about this past week? I call your attention to your week. Have you doubted God's promises even this past week? We all know Romans 8, 28. For those that love God, all things work together for good. Did you keep that in mind when you went to work this last week? Were there any situations where you should have lived in light of this, but you ignored it? You you doubted it? You lived as if the world was crashing down on you, and it showed in your attitudes? your actions, maybe how you spoke to somebody. Friends, I think now we can understand how difficult it really is to trust God. Just think about your week and just that one question. But I hope we can see how much of a difference it is if you trust in the Lord and not in yourself. Consider how many ways this could apply. I want to pick the top two. These are not nice these are the two toughest commands that I think we struggle with as an American church. They are commands based upon God's promise, and we struggle to trust God to actually put these into practice. We don't talk about these often, but I hope that you can sh- see how much of a difference it would make in your life if you did trust God. First one, in our giving. In our giving. We don't talk about finances here. This not a guilt trip. But just think about that tough command to trust the Lord with your finances. We could decide, if we were to doubt God, to give only out of fear of what we might have. But when you trust in the Lord, it changes how you look at giving 100%. You are not giving in your own power, figuring out what you can and can't do. No, now we are giving, trusting that God will make Things possible. Consider that as we take our offering next Sunday, that it is a trust. We call it a part of our worship service because we are actively trusting God that as we promise this money that we give to Him, that He will take care of our needs. It's a big deal to put money in the offering plate, and we pray that you would do it with worship. Second one, probably even bigger, we're going to spend the whole summer with Richard Burley here, going through Acts chapters 1 through 12. Come in June, we're going to be in in Acts. Consider how your evangelism would change if you trusted God's promises. You know, God commands us to witness, but we have a tough time trusting Him to actually witness. And if you were only to evangelize on your own power, you might be tempted to think and to look at different people and say, you know, this person might actually want to hear what I have to say. That looks like a person that actually might respond, get converted. I'm going to go ahead and share with them. You know how many people we meet each day that are actually like that? That might actually want to hear what we have to say? That based upon your look at them might actually be converted? Probably zero. I don't meet many people like that. In fact, the people that I meet couldn't care less and often are offended at what I have to say, because you want to know what? They were like I once was. Have you forgotten? I could care less. My life was going smooth. I had the world by the tail. I had my plans, my dreams. I was young. The world's rolled over me a couple times since, but at the beginning, I didn't have time for God. I didn't have a need for God, but somebody shared it with me. They shared the truth of Jesus Christ. And the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit struck me and took me as dead and made me alive. That's how it works. You see, we give, we evangelize differently because we have faith and trust in God and in His promises. What is God calling you to trust Him in? What is your hope in? True faith obeys God. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn.